On the last episode of The Evidence Space, we heard how you go about breaking down the long and expensive journey from idea to market so that you can attract investment. On this second part, we'll find out how you can go about building your dream team and what evidence you need to scale and eventually exit your business. Hello and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast from the Institution of Engineering and Technology that brings you conversations with leaders from health, care and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and in this episode of The Evidence Space, we'll be continuing our conversation with Dr. Ron John Nag and Martin Hunt. On the last episode of The Evidence Space, we learned about the types of funding that are available to drive the development of new technologies in these sectors and indeed how these types of funding are influenced by different healthcare policies around the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing more about how you can break down the long development journey into more incremental steps so that you can continue to attract funding throughout the life cycle of the development of new technology. We'll also talk more about how you build the right team and what it means to scale up and to exit a business once you're really starting to show patient benefit. So Martin, Ron John, I think another aspect of evidence and team building that I find really interesting is that in the case of startups, which may have emerged from a university environment, we hear of examples where the academic founder, the inventor, decides to leap over the proverbial wall and become a full-time member of the spin-out company, whereas in other cases, they choose to remain in an academic role. In the cases where they don't join the spin-out, does that send any warning signs to you about the company, or shouldn't we take it that way? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. You, you say, you know, if you think about it, is it, you know, is, is it kind of a, uh, you know, Michael Spence got a Nobel Prize for something called the lemon roll, right? So some this signaling factor, right, is the signal of not uh, dropping everything, selling your house and all its contents, giving up your job and joining this company. If you're not doing that, well, why should I invest in it, <laughs> right? Uh, is that a, a signal that it's not worth doing? Uh, and conversely, if you are doing it, and uh, Pat Brown at uh, Stanford, he, he uh, left his academic job and started Impossible Foods, which is the um, fake hamburger meat made out of plants. Um, so did it for a couple of reasons. That was very confident. He was able to raise $800 million to invent plant-based hamburgers. Could you have done that in academia? Probably not. Right, you know, you've used the marketplace, the capitalist uh, economy. So you do that. The other part, though, you say, well, why are they not doing it? Is it because, you know, they're just at a certain age, they're not the right temperament to do that. They just want to invent things. Maybe they're not interested in money. So they want to be a millionaire or billionaire, right? And so some people don't, right? And say, I'm quite happy to get this work out in the field to be used. If someone else can do that and use the entrepreneurial process. Uh, that can do but I must say as an investor that's often one of my first questions they don't they just want to simply let it go uh, I say well what's your next idea maybe I need to be investing in that instead you know what is something that you're willing to leave for uh, uh, others just sort of you know sort of modify it but but it's quite common academics more often than not don't want to live leave their academic position and Martin, how much can you read into an academic or indeed any founder with another day job deciding to give it all up for the startup versus staying in a more distance role? Uh, 
This is very much horses for courses, and I've had um, so I'm um, <clears throat> I'm dealing with a situation at the moment. No, uh, no names, no pack drill, where um, the the academic, the founder, uh, became CEO. Um, didn't want to become CEO, but uh, at the time it was expedient to do so, and has proved a, a very very difficult to extricate from that role, despite the fact that said individual is completely the wrong background for the role as required and, and should be back in academia providing more ideas and more science, but, but leaving a, a perfectly capable team to build. And it's, it's, it's actually quite onerous for, or has been onerous for the CEO. I think we've, we've nailed it at the moment. My own experience of, of joining a startup was the two academics said to me, I don't want to have anything to do with this. This business stuff is really scary. You do it but we'll support you. Uh, I think when I speak to academics from universities and they, they, I often get phone calls about this, I say, you know, your risk, your risk profile as an academic in a university, maybe pre-COVID was different to where it is now, but, you know, you, you're a chair, you're, you've got a ton of research funding coming in, you're very well respected, you've, you're tenured, you've, you've been around a long time. Um, this thing you're joining could run out of money in 12 months. Where do you go from there? So it, in many ways, it's about the attitude to risk, I think, as well. I, I agree with Ron, John. If they're not prepared to commit something to it and it's just an idea and they're going to wander off and do the other one, then, then they're, they're not for me. But, uh, you know... I, I, the, the corollary is I can't just wander into an academic institution and say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to become a professor in, in, in 12 months. And, uh, you know, they're going to say, well, you know, you might have a little bit more background than that. I have got a classic case where um, uh, a senior academic, very senior academic said, um, uh, well, I've just done a nine month MBA. So I now understand the business environment. That, that was enough for me, I'm afraid. Uh, we didn't go forward. Yeah. De definitely not one to repeat. But as you both indicated, over the life cycle of a company, the company will have different requirements and the teams may need to reconfigure and adjust and grow. And, and the roles that people hold within those teams may need to change. So I think overall, as you say, it's based on risk, but it's also understanding how that supports the company need at the current stage of development. Another point extending this around the people involved in the evidence, I suppose it might be tempting with early stage companies to try and mitigate the lack of data or the lack of market experience, or maybe the small size of the team by pulling on board a lot of very well-known key opinion leaders or advisors as your medical or scientific advisory board. How much weight does that really carry to someone looking to invest in the company? And if it does carry some weight, what do those advisors need to be contributing to convince you that their skills are actually going to be effective in driving the business forwards? So my sense, um, having operated on both sides of the pond, is um, KOLs tend to be uh, in much more important in the US than they are over here, and they have a different a different format. When uh, when I was a CEO, the uh, a, a reasonable sized company called J and J, um, their their Ethicon division had one KOL who was being paid in excess of a million dollars a year as an advisor to the company. Um, to the rest of the industry, this individual had no credibility whatsoever because they, you know, they'd been bought and sold. So 
I think it, it's it's horses for courses. We, when I was uh, operating in the US, we attracted the next set of KOLs. Who could we provide a platform for at, at symposia and conferences who could talk and, and then would build their reputation from there and tended to do the same thing here? Yeah, so often I own advisors. My first bit of advice on when I'm an advisor board is not have advisors, uh, have investors instead. <laughs> so, no, half seriousness, looking at the questions. And I see this in life science versus regular tech, where tech doesn't use them as much. Uh, but in life sciences, like de rigueur to have like, very famous people on, on a so-called advisor board. My very first question, okay, who are these people? Um, are they rich? Are they high net worth individuals themselves? If so, have they invested in the company? Okay, it's okay to get a few advisory shares for this, but have they actually put money? They should be fighting to get into the deal. And if they haven't, why not? Right Now, of course, there are many, very many uh, reputable scientists who just don't have, they're not high net worth individuals and they don't have the assets. So then you put a different filter on them. Are they advisors to like a thousand companies, right? Are they getting like a... A quarter percent from every single company and just using their own portfolio approach and they'll just basically say yes to anybody or are they being selective right uh and if they're being selective say okay uh usually these companies by definition at the early stage they're not usually paying cash to these advisors they're usually giving some at the early stage giving stock um can they actually uh be of benefit in the early stage it's very high risk even the you know a nobel prize winner won't be able to guarantee success of these early stage companies, but are they willing to put their name on it and say, okay, they're really buying, it's their intuition. So, okay, they're willing to put their reputation at stake and they haven't done it very often, so it's okay. And then if they're rich, have they put money in it? Yes or no. And if they haven't, then um, then it's, that, that's, that's a, you know, the evidence base, the evidence is not supporting us in that, in that case. So we've talked about the landscape for funding and to obtain that funding, what kind of evidence the founders need to be looking to provide to bring that investment on board to allow them to progress to the next stage. We've, we've also talked about how one of the valuable resources, the most valuable resources are the people that make up those early stage companies, how this is viewed by investors and how it can positively influence investment decisions and forward progress in general. I'd like to round out what's been a fascinating and really very comprehensive dive into this huge topic by looking a little bit further along the timeline. Until now, we, we really focused on the early stages on, on companies in the startup phase, but funding, as you've already indicated, is needed all along the company and product lifecycle journey, not just at the beginning. So I'd like to talk a little bit about expansion capital, which I, I know is sometimes called growth funding. Now, People may be aware that there are different models for that as well. Broadly, there's the private equity model where you take on more private investment, but there's also the option of going public and raising money in a public share offering. You both have experience with these options. So I'm keen to hear your experience of what's the, if I can use the right phrase, the least worst or least painful form of expansion funding, because they both sound pretty onerous and complex. Yeah, I think uh, they're different stakeholders, of course. There's the investors uh there's the employees um and there's of course obviously the customers uh, that are going to use the products the customers want companies to be well funded and not go out of business so they keep getting their, their products so that's their objective function um the employees often they're being five ten years in they've been working very very hard 
and they'd like to take some money off the table if they could. Um, and often the investors are sometimes in that boat. Sometimes they say, look, let it ride. I'm just going to have to reinvest it in something else uh, if, this is a, if this is a good vehicle. Uh, certainly what I'm seeing in the UK, it's easier to go public in the UK than it is in the US. Um, the threshold's much higher here in the US, though in biotech, the threshold's lower than in regular tech uh, 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 because you can actually go public with no revenues in, in biotech, uh, just basically on the pure IP, intellectual property uh, portfolio that you've built. Um, they're both very painful. The easiest way is acquisition, right? So you can just actually uh, be acquired and if you get to a certain level, you have that choice and usually Certainly what I see in the US, probably in the UK, they have these what sort of dual track mechanism where they say, well, okay, we're going to raise money from private equity or the public markets, you know, sort of expansion capital. Uh, often uh, it's maybe a slightly, maybe a, to finance a slightly different change in strategy, build their own distribution channels, build their own therapeutics instead of licensing it to big pharma. Um, and, uh, and do that. And then that's really a threat to the other players in those spaces and say, well, okay, uh, we've got the choice to let you be a standalone entity uh, or we should buy you now before you get too expensive. And that's usually the strategy that I'm seeing companies uh, do uh, as, as, as accordingly. And then more often than not, uh, often acquisition is the, is the exit. And what you're seeing big pharma they don't want to take that 5% risk either. It's cheaper for them to let the capitalist society let the, to, to invest uh, investors' money, see what works out. Even if they pay more, uh, they'd rather do that than use their own R&D dollars because they're financed on their p and uh, on the stock market, whereas they use uh, balance sheet dollars, it's a different finance. So that's, that's some of the dynamics that are happening of why companies take one approach versus another. So Martin, focusing on expansion capital then, and again, thinking about the evidence requirements, how do those two things marry up? Can you say which one is harder or, or highlight their relative strengths and weaknesses, pros and cons? Um, I think it starts with what's the, what's the long-term gain here? Um, if you're in a, in a company, you've been in it for, for a while, you're, you, your, your revenues have grown, you've, you've You've done well, but in order to you know to be a the billion dollar corporation, you've got an awfully long way to go. But what what you certainly need is you've you've established some credibility. The the technology does what it says on the tin. Um, you've got some revenues. They may not be huge, but you've got some revenues, which is a number of boxes ticked. I think at that point you're at a crossroads. Do you at that stage then go to traditional places like the venture capital? sector which will then back you but they're going to want to put in and if you go to someone like Abingworth you're going to have to you know want 10 to 15 million sterling to go in um, and and you're going to have to deal with that um, and and you know venture capitalists bless them are such lovely people to deal with it's not like them to come up with a, a difficult shareholder agreement where the the waterfall for management um, is, is is a problem so I guess the, the, the key issue is there's going to be pain whichever way you go. These things are not straightforward. They, they, come, they come with consequences. Um, I swore after I did my first um, IPO I'd never do another one and never be on the board of another public company. I've subsequently been on 
deputy chairman of a public company, and I've done an IPO as a chairman. Um, and I would say it depends that the, that it said over here, it's probably the same in the US, the IPO, it's not a window, it's a cat flap. Um, so if, you, if you've got the right story and you can pitch it at that right time, there's actually a lot of, a lot of benefit to going on to something like AIM, for example, because you get some very sophisticated investors who take a long-term view. The downside is you, you, know, you miss your revenue forecast by a, by a pound or a dollar and you're going to get crucified. We're building complex companies here. This is not straightforward stuff. There are bumps in the road. Um, it's, it's sometimes it's easier to have the bumps in the road behind closed doors with the venture capitalists screaming at you and, and nobody outside knows what's going on. Whereas the moment it's in the public domain, you know, you're, you're spread all over the front page of the newspaper. So I think um, it depends, I think, is, is, my, is my answer. And this is really where you, you also have to look at your management team. If you go on the public markets, 30% um, of the CEO's time is going to be dealing with the public markets. And, and the same pretty much goes for your CFO. Um, that being said, when we put our um, IPO, this is a this is a pre-revenue um, company in in uh, the microbiome in uh, 2017. We were 100% oversubscribed. Um, went out at 9p. We're currently trading at 25p, and we've had nothing but support. One of the downsides, also of a public company, is and I, I, I'm expecting Ron John to smile at this one is message boards. Retail investors, oh my God, they are a nightmare. And you can't stop them investing in your company and you read, and it takes up quite a lot of management time to, to deal with some of the issues, particularly if you get an activist on there. So given the choice between straightforward venture capital and a public market, provided the story is strong enough, I would edge slightly towards the public markets. Um, but you know, post-COVID, the public markets here were... Well, the, the public markets around the world were, were basically shut. So I, I think also the, the uplift on diligence and everything you have to do to do an IPO is, is very significant. You, can, you spend all the money up front and then the market may shut and you don't get it away. It comes with a, with a level of risk that perhaps doing a deal with a venture capital house uh, doesn't, doesn't carry. So I, I would edge slightly on the side of, um, of, of public markets, but you need to have a good stiff drink before you actually finally make the decision to do it. And how do those scenarios play into the concept of an exit, which is the last topic I'd like to explore with you both. What is an exit and what can it look like? So exit is when uh, the founders and the investors can actually get a return, first of all, of their money and then a return on their money uh, and their time and their efforts. Uh, and so that can be through an IPO. Now, you know, if it's a weak IPO, you may go IPO. Technically, your shares are public. Uh, but Martin probably comment on that is that sometimes, even though technically they're public, sometimes if you're a very small uh, market capitalization, it might be actually difficult to liquidate your shares without moving the share price. Um, the other option is an acquisition. And probably the dynamic here is... Uh, it ranges from sort of an all cash sort of proposition to stock to milestone base. What's quite common in biotech is Martin probably comment is what you call is bio dollar acquisitions. And 
these large acquisitions for a billion dollars, often what they say is, well, here's, here's 20 million. Uh, and if you do this, we'll give you another 100. If you do this, we'll give you another 200. And if someone actually buys your product on the shelves, then we'll start giving you, uh, uh, you know, a dollar for every, every uh, tube that's sold um, up to a billion. So often these are all almost like caps, almost they're like a negative instead of a positive when they're, uh, when they're put in the, in the press. Uh, but uh, I think the higher order issue is getting a nice home, whether you're an independent in, uh, on the public markets or you're part of another conglomerate where you're supported and uh, uh, you can continue in, uh, with inventing and uh, uh, creating products for the society. Okay, so it's not necessarily about selling the company. It's about the early investors being allowed to take their investment back out, hopefully with some profit. You want the company still going in the ideal scenario. You don't want it to stop. I mean, that does happen occasionally where people are just going to buy you and close you down so you're not a competitor anymore. That's not, and that's often that's the anecdote for put out. I haven't seen that happen that often, actually. Uh, it does happen occasionally, but not that often because um, usually some other competitors pops up anyway. So, Martin, what are your thoughts on that? It's a big topic, but what are your summary thoughts on how you approach building a business model towards that point? I think one of the things you can do is, is if you're not going to, if your aspiration is not to build this into the half a billion, the billion dollar company, you want, you want the ride, you want to make some money, you want to make some money for your investors. You, you need to think very, very carefully on the world stage. What, what is your business model? What is your distribution model? What's your revenue model like? And how easy is it for someone to integrate it? So very early on, um, in my experience, we looked at who would likely buy the company and what would generate the reason for them to do it. So put a large US sales force in, targeted a specific application, targeted it against the uh, technologies of large multinationals who didn't have the technology that we had. And, you know, as luck would have it, uh, we were successful. But um, I, I think sometimes you get... I hit, and Ron John will have heard this more than I do. You get these guys who, who rock up early stage. We'll do this, um, and we'll get we'll get an exit between years three and five to so and so for for this multiple of of value. And you just think that's so. I, I think if you're into expansion capital, think very carefully about how long how long you need that capital for. What are you going to achieve uh, by it? What are the major strategic milestones you can achieve and will that attract someone in and if that's what you want and that those two things don't marry up then then come up with a different strategy martin ron john unfortunately we have run out of time thank you both for joining me today it's been a joy to chat to you both pleasure thank you thank you <laughs> on this episode of the evidence space we've talked about the skills that your team will need to have to develop a new technology to market and how you can go about supplementing those skills with industry experience from a variety of sources, allowing you to demonstrate rapid progress to investors. While we've talked a lot about what happens in the early stages of developing a new company around a technology, we've also moved forwards in time and talked about what comes next, expansion, scaling, and exit. While these events may not be the most important thing to a company in the early stages, the decisions that you make early on will influence the options you have later, and therefore these need to be considered as well. We hope you've enjoyed this final episode in the current series of The Evidence Space. We've barely scratched the surface, 
So we'll be back with another fascinating lineup of guests for series two. We will take a deeper dive into design evidence for health, care and life sciences. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast or follow us to ensure you'll be there with us. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you.